The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze with Grace Goller. Dealing with cancer is by no means easy to handle, but our program aims to make it easier through knowledge. Whether you've been recently diagnosed, are going through treatment right now, or are a survivor, our program will have points that you should hear. And by sharing our stories together, we'll make it truly a life-changing experience that you don't have to go through alone. Now, here is your host, Grace Goller. Welcome to today's Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host, Grace Goller. And as usual, this show is brought to you by the Grace Goller Institute for Integrated Cancer Solutions. We are located on the Gold Coast in Australia and we have a global outreach, particularly via this show, Navigating the Cancer Maze, which provides you, the patient, with updates and the latest information from experts in cancer around the globe. Today we're going to look at an answer to cancer, how your immune body clock can assist complete remission. We're asking the question, could the timing of cancer patients' treatments be the missing link in the delivery of therapies? And two cancer researchers, Martin Ashdown, whom I'll be talking with today, and Brenton Coventry, are what I call immunological explorers, who have not only unearthed a buried treasure, but they've also created a map for other innovative cancer explorers to follow. The treasure is a cancer drug used for more than 20 years and it's now providing oncologists with new information about how to best help patients achieve complete remission. The drug's known as interleukin-2 and it's providing the researchers with something akin as to how the Rosetta Stone was used to unlock historical script and the outcome has been a map, mapping the immune cycle to enhance the outcome of treatments. Now, Martin Ashdown is a Melbourne-based scientist. He's a research fellow at the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Melbourne. Martin has made the observation that the immune response in the late-stage cancer patient is oscillating repeatedly over an approximate seven-day period or cycle. And this observation may have profound implications for the time delivery of various therapies, which via immune modulation may increase what we know as complete response rates, reduce toxicity and substantially reduce cost of treatment. Martin has co-designed trials at international institutions and presented at international conferences advocating monitoring patients prior to treatment and accurately timing therapy as pulses. This technique, known as immune synchronization, is believed to already happen accidentally in those patients who successfully respond to therapy with a complete response. 
Martin and colleagues suggest that the drugs and the resources to successfully treat cancer are already here but need to be used more accurately. Now, as a result of today's uh, navigating the cancer maze topic, we know that a lot of patients and uh, practitioners, oncologists are going to be very interested in this subject. So if you're a patient listening today and you really want to get the best knowledge and know how to work with this information, may I please encourage you to log on to our website, the Grace Gawler Institute, and go on the menu. You'll see a little link there, Immune Cycle Registry. What we've decided to do as a result of the really great significance and importance of this information is to assist you to find the right method and the right way to approach your treating practitioners to see if they can help you to measure your immune cycle. And we feel that the most responsible way to do this is uh, via the website and being able to help you directly one-on-one as patients. So um, I'll talk about that at the end of the show once again. Uh, you can also go to the blog grayschoolermedia.com and find out more information about registering for the Immune Cycle Registry. Without further ado, welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze, Martin Ashdown. Now this promises to be one of the most inspiring interviews I think that we um, have ever had on Navigating the Cancer Maze, Martin. So uh, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Grace. Um, Can you tell our listeners about your background? Okay, so I did my... I'm a scientist. I did my early training in uh, virology and electron microscopy. Ended up as a senior member of the scientific staff in pathology at the Royal Women's Hospital here in Melbourne and uh, then got interested essentially by accident into uh, cancer immunology and then uh, did some collaborative work with the University of Western Australia, designed some trials here in Australia in the Mayo Clinic, and uh, that's where we find ourselves today. And you work with Brendan Coventry. Can you tell us a little bit about Brendan's background and how you two came together in in doing the work that we're going to talk about on the show today? Okay. So uh, Brendan uh, Coventry is Associate Professor of Surgery at uh, Adelaide University, Royal Adelaide Hospital. Brendan initially... uh, 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 was, uh, did a science degree, then uh, medical, uh, and he's a surgical oncologist um, at Royal Adelaide Hospital, senior surgical consultant, but he had a, um, an interest in cancer immunotherapy and had been working on a melanoma vaccine, which um, I came across through an interview that he did with Australian Life Science. And his uh, melanoma vaccine in late-stage cancer patients uh, was delivering uh, complete responses in in stage four melanoma patients, which is remarkable. And uh, this particular vaccine had had essentially no toxicity profile, so that pretty much uh, uh, caught my attention. And then I spoke with Brendan, and he liked uh, my ideas, and we've been working together ever since. So you have a love affair with the immune system. Uh, how did that actually start? What was your passion in, in looking at the immune system? What ignited you, in other words? Uh, okay, when I was at the Royal Women's Hospital, I was uh, asked to set up a laboratory uh, looking at um, the DNA content of cancer cells. And in the process of setting up that laboratory, I was looking at, at cells of the immune system under stimulation. And noticed that they, when you stimulate um, lymphocytes in particular, you know these are sort of cancer-fighting um, white cells with the blood, um, they, when they divide, they do it 
synchronously and they do it at different stages and uh, so I got very interested in the in how uh, the immune system once it's triggered works over the over the time domain and uh, and then Look, did a bit, bit of further reading, and uh, particularly of the work of Robert North, which I would encourage, encourage everyone to read about, uh, and that really spurred me on to investigate this phenomenon in the human situation. Mm-hmm. So um, you're quoted as saying in an article that was published in Australian, or Australasian science rather, that the Rosetta Stone for cancer may be much closer than we think. Can you elaborate on that comment? Okay, so that was in an article about uh, the 20 years of clinical use of a, uh, an immune hormone or cytokine called interleukin-2. Now, this drug has been used for 20 years to treat uh, late-stage melanoma and renal cell car- kidney cancer patients, renal cell carcinoma patients. These two cancers are, are very different, but they deliver complete responses where all disease disappears roughly at the same rate. And... Back when it was uh, first introduced 20-odd years ago, we didn't really understand how it worked other than it was thought to work by stimulating the immune system. Now we know paradoxically that this immune hormone that's used clinically is also responsible for switching the immune system off. And it's only been the result of the last 20, 20 years of this clinical research and the immunology catching up with that clinical research that it becomes apparent that when this drug works successfully, from our work, it's indicating that it works through the timing of, of administration. And so if timing of administration is the principal determinant of efficacy, well then um, it opens up uh, the possibility that it's, it, it could be um, feasible to successfully treat most, if not all, cancer patients with this agent. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that more. Um, tell us about the big aha you must have had. There must have been a point where you went... Oh my God! This is this is it. You know, standing on the shoulders of North. Mm. Can you tell us about that moment? Okay, so uh, yeah, it's important to appreciate that in the North experiments, he showed that if you in the mouse experiments, that if you time chemotherapy very precisely and direct the chemotherapy not at the cancer in the mouse model, but at the uh, a subset of cells of the immune system called what back then they were called suppressor cells, um, but now they're called regulatory T cells. That if you got rid of those regulatory T-cells with a single dose of chemotherapy, um, you could free up the mouse's immune system to get rid of the cancer. So the, 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 the aha moment was that, well, you know, chemotherapy, when it works, works through manipulating the immune system. In fact, in North's experiments, the chemotherapy really had no effect over the cancer at all. Mm, interesting. Yes, and so that said to me that possibly that uh, the, the, the preceding decades of cancer research had been completely misdirected. Mm. By we, People were more interested in the cancer when, in fact, we should be more interested in the immune system. Mm-hmm. And so as a result of that, uh, it was important to try and understand what was going on um, uh, in, in the mouse's immune system and also the human immune system because of what North described in the mouse, if that was the case in the human, well, then you would have to accurately administer chemotherapy in the time domain. And so in the early experiments that I designed and co-designed with various people, it was important that we track the immune response on a daily basis. And this really hadn't been done before. And this is what we view as the major oversight in, in cancer immunology, that um, just as what we have done with the, uh, with the menstrual cycle of mapping the menstrual cycle on a daily basis, the fertility specialists, that has never been done in the immune response in the human situation. Mm-hmm. And it's still not being done. 
quite so, remarkable. Yes, it's a major oversight. Um, what about William Colley's work? Does, uh, does this tie in in any way with the, the North... Uh, Work? Oh, absolutely. So William Colley noticed that patients, uh, late-stage cancer patients who got infections as a result of surgical wounds, etc., and, and ulcerative, ulcerating um, tumour lesions, they would get infections and then get fevers. And in, in some of those patients, um, he noticed that the, the tumours would completely regress. So he had the idea that, well, if we... Um, if we uh, infect a patient with a, a bacteria and induce an infection, um, perhaps we can get a fever and then perhaps that fever will uh, um, uh, cause tumour regression. And that's exactly what he found. And it took a number of years to figure out exactly why that was happening and ultimately because of his early work in the starting, I think, in the, in the late 1890s, that led to the discovery of tumour necrosis factor uh, a few decades ago, and then now we're starting to appreciate what actually Coley was observing because this whole reinvigoration um, of interest in immunotherapy um, is basically uh, it's a recapitulation of, of Coley's observations that you can manipulate the immune system of the cancer patient for remarkable therapeutic benefit. Mm, exciting stuff. Um, interleukin-2, for people who are listening today who are patients who this term might be new to, can you explain what interleukin-2 okay. is? This, was, this is um, uh, an immune hormone it's, or a cytokine that was uh, uh, identified um, uh, three decades ago and it was thought... Uh, it was often, it's often been called the master cytokine. It was one of the first immune hormones to, to be identified. And it, it was found that if uh, you gave uh, white cells lymphocytes, interleukin-2 would cause them, it would stimulate them and cause them to divide and multiply. Um, so it was thought to be a, what was known as a pro-inflammatory cytokine, um, switching the immune system on. And uh, uh, but now, what's uh, what's as I said earlier, what's been appreciated is that this hormone has a paradoxical uh, function. It also switches the immune system off. But it has been used successfully to treat late stage cancer patients, principally melanoma and kidney cancer. But also, there's, there's been a smattering of other trials in other cancers. Um, uh, but it, it essentially. Um, uh, is there to drive the immune system on. But, but it delivers complete responses consistently in around about 7% of late-stage patients. Mm. So a number of people have said that it's a very toxic substance to be using as a therapeutic agent. Mm. But mm. obviously what you're saying here mm. is that if you use it at the right time of the of the cycle, that sure. is not the case. Well, well, what's interesting is that uh, this cytokine, this uh, interleukin-2, this hormone, immune hormone, has a very short normal physiologic half-life. So its activity, its normal activity happens very briefly. And in the therapeutic application, they give it as continuous eight-hour infusions over about three or four days. And so what we think's been happening is that uh, uh, this uh, normal immune hormone, its action is actually extended by the therapeutic application. And that, that extension at high dose can, can have some toxic side effects, although people are saying that those effects can be managed. But people have also noticed that intermediate and low dose, you can get similar effects. Mm -hmm. So it, we think it, it's possible to re redesign that protocol. Instead of giving it for four days, give it for one day, Instead of at high dose, give it at much lower doses, uh, and we think the same sort of effects can be um, can be achieved. 
but more importantly, as um, uh, one of our, um, as, as uh, Janice Dutcher, a very experienced cancer immunotherapist uh, in New York, had, uh, has written about our work, and which we're very grateful for, she thinks it has the ability, this change in protocol has the ability to dr- dramatically change the outcomes in, 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 in immunotherapy. Mm-hmm. So you um, must have some papers that you could quote if any of our listeners or any of the researcher practitioners who are listening today um, are specifically on the interleukin question. Oh, that uh, that we've published. Uh, there's an article that um, uh, we wrote a couple of years ago uh, called the 20th anniversary of, it, of the use of interleukin-2 therapy. Um, I would encourage anyone to read uh, Janice Dutch's work in the area. Um, uh, that's, I think that's pretty mm-hmm. they, for those papers should lead you if you look at the references those papers should lead you in the right direction great and you'd be happy for me to put those uh, as references up on my blog oh, absolutely so that people absolutely. can access them can't pay for that sort of advertising <laughs> fantastic and the blog folks is gracegallermedia.com where you can go after this show and access all these very interesting things that you're hearing today and well referenced so um, we're going to take a break now for our first session on navigating the cancer maze. I'm sure you found this most engaging, whether you're a cancer patient or a health professional listening today. So don't go away. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Learn to navigate the cancer maze with trusted professionals in cancer health care. The Grace Scholar Institute, a not-for-profit organization with an established track record, a global clientele, and expertise in local and international referrals. The Institute's founder has almost 40 years' experience as a multidiscipline cancer strategist with a focus on finding options and implementing personalized care for cancer patients. The Grace Scholar Institute can help you navigate the cancer maze. Why not email the Institute today at institute at gracegoller.com or visit their website at gracegollerinstitute.com. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now... Back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. We're back on Navigating the Cancer Maze today and I'm with Martin Ashdown and we're talking about the immune system. Um, Martin, you were talking about the interleukin-2 as a a treatment and about the paradox that actually happens, the switch-on, switch-off mechanism. Yes. Can you talk more about the actual mechanism of that so we can get an, an understanding of how it works. Okay, well, I guess the, one of the a good analogy is that, um, is that uh, as we discussed earlier, um, the immune system or uh, how the immune system works 
uh, with that of the menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. Now, as I said earlier, thanks to the fertility specialists, they went to the trouble of mapping the menstrual cycle on a daily basis. And the menstrual cycle is a very time-dependent mechanism. The hormones and their receptors act on different cell populations at different times to create a highly coordinated sequential physiologic process. Uh And, and, And really what we've done, and it's also, it's a repeating process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everything in the body uh, is under what's known as homeostatic control. And the physiologists or endocrinologists would tell you that if anything that's under homeostatic control with feedback, with a feedback mechanism for that control must oscillate. So the immune system is really not that much different uh, with respect to how the, 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 from a perspective of the mechanistic aspects of it. We know that the immune system, when you stimulate it, and the best example is, you know, uh, when you're going overseas, they say, I'll get your vaccines done at least two weeks before you go away. Because it takes your immune system about 10 to 14 days to develop protective immunity. Yep. Uh, and so, but that's a very sequential process again. So, and a very time dependent. It's an A B C D process, and it works in that in in that order. And the immune system coordinates itself in a similar way to the menstrual cycle, in that there are transient interactions of the immune hormones, the cytokines, like interleukin two, and their receptors on specific cell populations. So this is, uh, as I said, a coordinated, time dependent, highly sequential process that when you stimulate it, it rises and it falls, it switches on and it switches off. The observation that we've made is that in the chronic state where there's constant stimulation, say in the cancer patient, that immune response appears to be oscillating. And that in itself is uh, an important observation because in the past people thought that the immune response was essentially a, a fairly static Phenomenon, but in fact, it is dynamic. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like looking at the horizon of the, of, the, of the sea or the ocean. You look at the horizon, it looks flat, but when you look more closely, it's actually undulating. Mm-hmm. And that's what essentially what we've done is we've looked very closely at that immune response over a daily basis or near daily basis over a number of weeks to see the immune system rising and falling in response to the to, to the tumour burden. Okay. So, um, yeah, look, I've been um, researching the immune system and involved in a hands-on level with patients for many years. I was surprised by the short window of opportunity that you talked about with interleukin-2 receptors being present on immune cells for just 8 to 12 hours. Mm, mm. Uh, can you speak more to that? Well, that's, this, this sort of transient aspect has been known for a number of years, and I, I, it, we're actually bewildered that the immunologists haven't looked more closely at, at this, this phenomenon. Uh, um, you know, this is, this is how this, the immune system coordinates itself. It's through this half-life, um, uh, short half-life uh, rise and decay of the, the, the production of the hormone, um, the, the cytokine, interleukin-2, for example. There are other cytokines do exactly the same sort of thing. And then the half-life expression of the re- their receptors on these different cell populations. Again, this is in the textbooks. But no one's ever, ever bothered to map it accurately on a daily basis in the chronic disease state. Often in, in the literature you'll see uh, a mouse experiment done uh, looking at um, cytokines, uh, their levels of expression, and, and the immunologists will take one or two measurements in the first week, one in the second week, and one in the third week, and then join the dots. They never take daily measurements. Mm. And this is, this is not a difficult ask. It might be a little bit more expensive to do, 
um, because you have to use groups of mice, but it just has not been done. And we see this as the major oversight in understanding the immunology um, of, of cancer because essentially, essentially everyone starts with the mouse experiment. And so, you know, the whole thing's um, been done in a very poor way from the ground up. And, yeah. and, I, and we attribute this to, um, you know, the failures or not understanding how to um, successfully uh, manipulate the immune system of, uh, of, of um, patients in, in cancer clinical trials because we've had a lot of recent failures in, in cancer vaccines uh, um, and, and what have you. So uh, we see this as the main oversight that people have just have not looked closely enough in the, at the time domain. Mm. It's uh, classically called a scotoma, I think, in medicine. Oh, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where, um, you know, there's the stories of uh, people being on a beach in an Indigenous culture mm. and um, the, the sailing ships coming in, but because they don't have any reference point for the sailing ships, they don't see them. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, I think and the, it's the mm. it's, yeah. Mm. I think that's a very interesting point. The immune markers that you measure, mm. what can you tell us about them mm. um, and I suppose they're, they're probably limitless if you really looked, are they? Well, the, the, when we first started, started looking, we chose um, a fairly uh, uh, accessible marker, a C-reactive protein, and uh, principally because it was the cheapest one. We, we didn't have a lot of resources uh, back then, and uh, the interesting thing about C-reactive protein is that it had been known to rise and fall with initiation and termination of the immune response uh, in a number of situations for about... 40 or 50 years and uh, but what was interesting about it was that uh, CRP had been shown to rise with disease progression in cancer patients and so just by putting sort of two things together really um, we thought well okay if this is if C-reactive protein does this perhaps we can use it as a surrogate biomarker of the immune system switching on and switching off if not in the acute situation, but more so in the chronic situation. Mm -hmm. So we, we really actually predicted that we would see um, the immune system recapitulating itself or repeating itself in the chronic state. And um, strangely enough, this whole phenomenon was actually described mathematically before we actually saw it, um, just from the basis of just the physiology or endocrinology um, you know, basically of the menstrual cycle and, and overlaying that into the immune system. And, um, and sure enough, that's what we saw. When you serially measure C-reactive protein over four weeks, every other day and sometimes every day if you, if you can do it, you see the immune system rising and falling over a, an approximate seven-day cycle. Other cytokines have shown um, a similar sort of cycle. Our, our colleagues at the Mayo have shown sh shorter cycles with other certain cytokines. But the, the main thing to appreciate is that you really only see this if you take daily or near-daily measurements over a number of weeks. If you, it doesn't really manifest itself if you take one measurement a week for four weeks you yep. really need daily or near daily initially it was when we first saw it it was monday wednesday friday for four weeks that seems very basic <laughs> well it is uh, it is very basic I, I think you know nature is some, you know is sometimes m manifestly complex but fundamentally simple uh, and um, uh, if you if you don't look you won't see it and uh, you know, again, this is the analogy with the menstrual cycle. You know, the only reason we know about the fertility window is because of you know that aspect of that. that the menstrual cycle has been accurately mapped, and uh, and also overlaying Robert North's work. You know, Robert North's work was predicated on timing. That's all. 
and we know that the immune system, because of its these transient interactions uh, and sequential interactions, that timing must be important. Mm. And if it's and it's and it's the simplest domain to investigate. It is. It is. How long is each immune cycle in any patient that's well, got well, advanced we, cancer? Okay, when we've mapped it, we've mapped it in a number of different cancers now, whether it be colorectal, um, lung, kidney, bladder, breast, glioblastoma. It looks like it, it, it's just a natural kinetic of the immune system across the human population. Having said that, it's a bit like the elasticity, the biological elasticity of the menstrual cycle. You know, the menstrual cycle is known to be on average 28 days, but uh, in an out, you know, in an outbred human population of you know three billion women on the planet and mm. the fertile ones, obviously, and uh, it's been consistently that way. But there's a bit of a deviation, you know, around that 28 days. That some women are 32, some women are 26. It can vary bit all sorts of circumstances. So with respect to this immune cycle, we see it, on average it's about, it appears to be about seven days, uh, but it can be, we've seen it as short as five and as long as nine. So, but, you know, we need more data, obviously, mm. to tie it down. But the mathematics of it, say it's it's about seven days now getting to the mathematics of it mm. <laughs> uh, to the equation mm. so i saw a paper authored by yourself brendan coventry and richard bright published in the journal for immunotherapy in november 2013 um, the title was clinical outcomes of interleukin 2 therapy in advanced cancer yep. meta-analysis over 62 trials can you tell us about the significance and implication of this paper and about the equation and how that came about Okay. So you get complete response. Okay, so essentially, if you um, uh, assume that the cycle is on average seven days in length, and that because of the uh, the information out there in the literature that the therapeutic window is about twelve hours, so it's a twelve hour window every approximate seven days, and it's a repeating uh, cycle. That creates a probability issue that the patient could walk into the oncology clinic and receive therapy at about the right time of about a one in fourteen, so a seven percent probability. Mm-hmm. So this is how the whole thing was initially um, derived from. Uh, uh, from from information that you know we we already had, um, so if you're prepared to accept that at the, the observations of North, our observations of a repeating cycle, and the, the the immune kinetics that have been published in in the literature, and and so this equation says that the, the probability that a cancer patient will be successfully treated with interleukin two therapy is about seven percent. You can go back and interrogate the clinic last twenty years of clinical literature. Uh, of the clinical use of interleukin-2 and see how many patients get complete responses. And I think we came, I think there was a, could be, I think if I recall correctly, about 10,000 patients in that in that meta-analysis. And when you look at it, um, uh, the complete response rates in these two very different cancers were 7%. Magic number. Magic number. And, and so what we did was, interestingly, uh, we, we, we um, did a, uh, an experiment with a 14-sided dice just to see if we could simulate the probabilities. And we got a 14-sided dice and we said, OK, uh, we're going to throw this 14-sided dice 50 times and we're going to repeat that 30 times. So, you know, that's 1,500 episodes. And we're going to choose the number five for no other reason than it, that it was one of the numbers. And you know the probability is going to be that it's going to turn up if you toss the dice a number of times, 7%. But what was interesting was that when you tossed the dice 1,500 times, that five 
um, in those 30 episodes can come up um, anywhere between 0 and 15% of the time in small, small studies, like 50 patient studies, which is what you see in the, in the clinical literature. And so, and this is exactly what you see with the complete response rates with interleukin-2, is that they can, although the average complete response rate is 7%, it can wobble anywhere between, you know, zero mm-hmm. in a 30-patient trial or 15% in another trial done somewhere else. So it all, but the important thing is it all hovers within that area and it all clusters around the 7% line. So this gave us confidence that when interleukin-2 is, is working well, um, the spectacularly well delivered complete response is actually working through timing. Timing. Mm. There it is. It's all in the timing. Okay, we'll finish on that note on navigating the cancer maze. We'll be back shortly with Martin Ashdown. Don't go away. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. Learn to navigate the cancer maze with trusted professionals in cancer health care. The Grace Scholar Institute, a not-for-profit organization with an established track record, a global clientele, and expertise in local and international referrals. The Institute's founder has almost 40 years' experience as a multidiscipline cancer strategist with a focus on finding options and implementing personalized care for cancer patients. The Grace Scholar Institute can help you navigate the cancer maze. Why not email the Institute today at institute at gracegoller.com or visit their website at gracegollerinstitute.com. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now... Back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Welcome back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm with Martin Ashdown talking about the immune system. If you have uh, just tuned in, be sure to go back and listen to the entire program because there's some very important information for you here today if you're a cancer patient, and I know you'll get very inspired by it. Um, Martin, there's been a lot of publicity around the immune system's role in cancer in recent months. A lot of new things coming on the market. In fact, this year in June, we featured Immunotherapy Month um, on Navigating the Cancer Maze. We had a number of special guests. We got a lot of interest about it. In light of the recent introduction of a lot of immunotherapy drugs at a lot of expense coming onto the market, uh, these drugs manipulate the immune response. Where do you think your findings are going to fit in? And how's your work been received? This is a $64 question. How's your work been received by the medical and research establishment in general? Oh, OK. Well, I'll, t- I'll tackle the first bit first. Um, look, the, 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 what's happening with cancer immunotherapy, as you mentioned earlier about William Coley, all this is coming back. So this is, this is essentially a reinvention. But the, the recent... Um, agents that have hit the press uh, these are drugs by Bristol-Myers Squibb, uh, Merck uh, Genentech they go for targets uh, called uh, checkpoint targets and uh, these uh, 
the idea of these agents is to actually release the immune system from regulation. Now, mm-hmm. this is really the, uh, an important um, uh, mind shift in the way we are actually treating cancer because what this is actually telling us is that when these agents work, they work by releasing a pre-existing immune response from regulation. Mm-hmm. So in the old days, it was thought, oh, you know, patient has cancer, patient's immune system can't see the cancer, um, uh, and, and that idea is clearly wrong. Uh, these agents are telling us that there is a, an, an immune response going on against the cancer, but importantly, that the cancer has got hold of the normal down-regulation controls of the immune system. So the, the analogy um, my colleague Brendan Coventry uses is that the immune system has its foot on the accelerator and the brake at the same time. So the engine's turning over, but it's not doing anything. Mm-hmm. These, these uh, monoclonal antibodies, the uh, uh, checkpoints uh, inhibitors uh, are uh, blockade uh, agents. Blockade agents are um, taking the brake off of the immune system. Mm-hmm. So this is really uh, telling us a lot about that fundamental mechanism of what's going on. And just like interleukin-2, the appreciation is that interleukin-2 um, does exactly the same thing. It uh, can uh, uh, take the, the break off of the immune system by stimulating the accelerator pedal, if you like. The, the major flaw with these, these neuroagents, nivolumab and, and, and the like is that these targets aren't only on the effector populations, the ones we're trying to drive, they're also on the regulatory cell populations. So these aren't unique targets to different aspects of the immune system. And although they do work in a subset of patients, they don't work in all patients. And uh, we believe that by accurately administering these agents in a pulsed fashion, in an, in an immune-synchronised fashion with respect to the immune system's dynamics or its cycle or oscillation or whatever you want to call it, essentially our work, um, what happens clinically, you get random responses with the random administration. We think that it, it should be possible to create um, consistent responses and consistent complete responses if these agents are delivered at the right time in a pulse fashion. So it's just like the menstrual cycle mm-hmm. and understanding how there's a reoccurring therapeutic w- window, a reoccurring um, conception window. The same thing we think applies to the immune cycle. and that. So this is very exciting because it, it's basically giving us, opening up a whole uh, insight into the, the workings of the cancer patient's immune system. And we think it's just going to come down to the accurate timing to make the responses consistent. Now, to answer your last question about how our um, ideas are being received, look, um, a a number of clinicians uh, warm to it. They really like the idea. Um, It it makes a lot of sense, after all, the physiology, the endocrinology, back it all up, the clinical experiences back it all up, the... uh, a lot of the um, the mouse data uh, backs it up, uh, but probably it's our our biggest um, enemy is the simplicity of it. People say, "Well, how can it be that simple?" So uh, I'll, I guess we'll have to wait and see how simple it is. So uh, <laughs> I mean, if 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 we're right, it will be wonderful. If we're wrong, you know, we'll be in good company, and you can laugh us out of town. Mm-hmm. 
but there might be a high probability that you're right. <laughs> yes, well, I think, I think if you go back to, to... If we could get people to do the mouse experiments properly and, and go back and have a look at Robert North's work and also some of David Klatzman's work in France, uh, I mean, this is... This this is this really should have been worked out a long time ago, and it's all to do with accurate mapping, accurate observations, frequent observations. I mean, is there anything wrong with more data? Mm. And it's very user friendly because uh, above all, do no harm. If you're administering these things at the right time of the cycle, that's surely makes sense. Well, indeed, I think it brings it makes it a bit it brings up um, the issues of actually managing things up front rather than randomly throwing it at the patient population and, and watching patients respond and or not respond. You do a little bit of hard work up front, and that we think will have the have the potential to get rid of all the work downstream. Mm. Because basically, it's saying that we can already successfully treat uh, most cancer patients, if not all cancer patients, if the agents are delivered in a time-targeted, immune-synchronized way, and, and not in this sort of random blunderbust um, uh, approach that's been going on. And the danger is that if they, we keep doing this, we'll have to move on to more and more combination therapies, and essentially keep repeating the same old mistakes. Mm-hmm. That was a very important statement that you just made. Um, Evolutionary-wise, um, the way our immune systems have developed, that was quite interesting what you said before in paralleling that with the way that the female um, hormonal system has has been developed. Sure. Do you have any more insights on the evolution of cancer and the immune system that uh, you could uh, share with us? Oh, <laughs> Written about in papers or just out of your well, head? <laughs> well, I, I think... Look, my view is that, and I think my colleague Brendan Coventry shares this, is that cancer is actually an intimate part of our life cycle. Uh, one of the most amazing things I find, you know, uh, or when thinking about this is that the cancer cell is supposedly been, well, it's been portrayed as an aberrant cell, but this aberrant cell with, you know, mutations and what have you is able to survive incredible, you know, onslaught of toxic therapies, continuous toxic therapies, you know, radiation, um, chemotherapy and what have you, and survive and ultimately kill the host. So, uh, but what's, you know, going back to your early comments or statements about the new immunotherapies, what, what this is telling us is that the cancer is actually not the problem. The problem is actually the immune system's perception of the cancer. Now, the interesting thing is that the immune system uh, is under rapid evolution. Uh, it's called uh, somatic hypermutation. Um, cells of uh, cancer cells, they tend to mutate, the genes tend to mutate at a glacial pace. But the immune system's role is to actually keep up with that. And so then, therefore, you've got to say, ask, you, uh, ask, ask yourself the question, well, if, if we can detect an ongoing immune response against the cancer, uh, but that immune response is actually being suppressed, Again, the cancer is actually not the problem. The genetics of it, the genomics of it, is not the issue. And I think this is what's led everyone down the wrong path, is everyone's been concentrating on the the cancer cell. I think with Socrates said only a fool would preoccupy themselves with the origins of the universe. (laughs) Enough said. (laughs) Heard it loud and clear. Um, Also, um, these immune measurements, in terms of complementary alternative medicines, have you you had a look at that or do you know anyone who has? Because one would presume that any therapeutic substance that you're using against cancer would follow the same 
precedent? Well, look, I, look I, it's, it's difficult to say, but I'll, I'll, I'll just pass the comment that um, with respect to, to um, you know, homeopathy and, and, and natural medicines and things like this, you've got to remember that most of the cancer drugs, the original cancer drugs, came from plants. So you look at the Blaston and Vincristin origins were with the periwinkle plant of Madagascar and taxol, of course, specific yew tree and things like this. You know, there are things out there in nature which are powerful immune stimulants. Um, you know, people have allergies to peanuts and things like this. Mm. So there are things out there that can stimulate the immune system. My only um, caveat on all this is that what we now know is that the th- same things that can stimulate the immune system can also shut it down. Mm. And this is, this is what we call the bimodal paradox. And this has essentially been solved by the new understanding of how interleukin-2 works against the immune system. So, look, and, you know, even, even another remarkable story is I would encourage everyone to read about is a, a food dye called Rose Bengal or PV10, as it's called, um, as it's been used clinically. I mean, this is just, a you know, the pink food dye that you put in cupcakes and it's shown to have remarkable effects over... Um, uh, melanoma lesions, and uh, and it looks as though that this is a, this um, cupcake food dye is actually stimulating the immune system when it works, uh, and so you know it, it it may end up being that we actually to to successfully treat the cancer patient we actually don't have to use much of anything really as long as it's done at the right time. Yeah, that's fairly remarkable too. <laughs> we'll come back to Roseburn Gold because that's a really interesting story. Um, Autoimmune responses. Now, there's a lot of clinics around the world that are actually using, and we're probably not going to have time to finish this question in, in, in this particular part, but um, the autoimmune response by using a lot of immune stimulants and getting a real cytokine storm, a really good response. Yes. Um, a lot of clinics are doing this but not actually measuring it. And these are some of the more alternative clinics around the world. Sure. So this I see is one of the other big problems for the uh, immunotherapy um, angle. Sure. And so uh, and that's, that's, a, it's a, it's a very good point because t- we've used cancer drugs to treat autoimmune disease and, uh, you know, to sh- switch the immune system off when, when really we want to switch the immune system off on in cancer. Uh, yeah. And this, again, goes to the bimodality issues that uh, cancer drugs hit dividing cells, and we know now that the immune system has, uh, you know, the accelerator cells, they divide at a different time to the regulatory T cells. So, again, yes, I, I think that the, uh, the timing of application of, of a whole raft of agents with respect, to, um, with respect to autoimmune disease, and, and we know that patients... Autoimmune patients can respond spectacularly well to standard chemotherapeutic agents. It doesn't happen all the time, mm. and we would argue again that it's all to do with timing with respect to their their immune systems oscillating. And we know that in many autoimmune conditions, the disease is actually relapsing, remitting, relapsing, remitting. Okay. So it's all so clinically, you can see aspects of of our immune cycle manifest themselves clinically. Um, and then perhaps subside. So, look, yes, I think the immune we call we call it immune synchronisation of therapy. This we think this has great application in autoimmune disease uh, and uh, as well as cancer. So, hitting 
the opposing side of the seesaw as it swings. So, you know, to use that analogy, throwing the sandbag on the right end of the seesaw at the right time. Yep, and then measuring. And then, but above all, measure it before you do it, because otherwise it becomes a random event. And so you've got to understand about the pre-existing nature of the immune dynamics before you actually treat. That's a great answer. Thank you. We're going to take a break now on Navigating the Cancer Maze. We'll be back shortly for our last session with Martin Ashdown. Don't go away. To a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. Listen each week to Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller, from the Grace Goller Institute, as she interviews cancer medicine experts, researchers, allied health professionals, patients, and caregivers. Navigating the Cancer Maze provides you with information, education, inspiration, and a toolkit that will equip you wherever you are and whoever you are to effectively navigate your way through the cancer maze. The Grace Goller Institute also provides ebook resources. Be inspired. Be empowered. Visit the Institute's website at www.gracegollerinstitute.com or email institute at gracegoller.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at one 866 472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Back for our last session today on Navigating the Cancer Maze with Martin Ashdown. Um, Martin, with many uh, new cancer drugs, antibodies, immune therapies, some of them those you've mentioned today, they're all coming onto the market, as we said, great expense. What can patients do if they're interested in trying to improve outcomes, having their immune cycle um, synced with their cancer treatments? Is this a reasonable request that they could make to their oncologist, for instance? Uh, well, look, I, I think it's a reasonable request. Whether the oncologist can actually get it done is another thing. I, I think the, the patient perhaps has to take control of their treatment here. And um, I, w- I would encourage people at least to get um, perhaps three blood measurements done the week before they start their therapy. Uh, and in this way, they can collect data that um, when they, um, say for argument's sake, start their therapy on a Monday, by having three measurements, say the Monday, Wednesday, Friday beforehand, because the immune system is oscillating, by getting three measurements, you know where you're likely to be on the Monday um, when you start the therapy. So you'll either be going into a trough or coming into a peak, halfway up or halfway down. And then um, we know that um, from standard protocols, regimens, that um, there's a response rate mosaic or spectrum. So some patients get complete, minority patients get complete responses, um, uh, about about 5 to 10%, and then about 25 to 30% of patients get partial responses, um, the rest get stable disease and disease progression. 
And so we think that uh, by collecting this data, as we did with the, the Mayo Clinic study that was presented at ASCO in 2009, that you'll be able to see where the successful patients get treated in their cycle. Mm-hmm. So initially, certainly with respect to C-reactive protein, we think that's a good starter. The Mayo colleagues at the Mayo are working on other markers which may be better. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, just to get that and data, it's, it's like ex- exactly what a couple want to do who want to conceive. They map the menstrual cycle before they go about attempting to conceive. Sure, yeah. And, and so, it's, it, as I said earlier, what's clear is that in cancer patients, there are pre-existing immune responses, immune response going on against the cancer. Our observations are it is oscillating, and if the therapeutic window um, idea is as correct as what it looks, well, then you want to make sure you got treated at the right point. Now, having said that, patients often receive several lines of therapy, so if you are, um, you know, patients or in a group of patients that, uh, you know, got treated where we think the therapeutic sweet spot is but just before the peak um, and you get a complete response well then you, you say well look this is what happened and should you recur again or the therapy didn't quite you got a very good partial response well I want to be treated here in this part of the cycle yeah so uh, you know again I would encourage them to, to look the patients to look around map Look at what's happening out there with interleukin-2. There's a resurgence of interest happening there. Look at what's happening with the PD-1, um, uh, PD-1L monoclonal antibodies, the CTLA-4. It, and, you know, as I said, our view is that these drugs will have to be timed. Mm. So if anyone is interested in doing that, I would be very interested in hearing from you, and I'm sure uh, Martin would too, if you have the medical data on your story Mm. and what's actually happened from listening to the show today. So you can contact me through my blog, uh, grayschoolandmedia.com. If you go there immediately after the show, you'll find more information and references to this show, or you can contact me on institute at grayschooler.com as an email. Um, so where to from here, um, Martin? Um, in an ideal world, what's needed? Um, what are you doing in furthering your research at this point? Mm-hmm. Well, look, it's a, we're, got a, we're sort of presenting a different type of uh, you know, cancer business model, if you like. We're saying that the drugs to successfully treat cancer are already here. And this is all about uh, um, using existing agents and existing resources and so, you know, certainly people in government are interested because the reality is that we can't afford these drugs that these companies are making. Oh, they're hugely expensive. Yes, I mean, you're talking about Nivolumab, best part of $100,000, and now they're talking about combination therapy, you know, that's going to add another $80,000, $100,000 to this, and, you know, people can't afford this, uh, these sort of drugs, so we have to make them work better. Mm. And so we're talking to government and, and trying to get uh, support and funding. We're also talking to the major pharmaceutical companies saying, look, we think we can make your drugs work better if you do this. And why haven't you done it? Uh, we, we, we still maintain this is a major oversight, that people have not mapped the immune response initially in the mouse experiments and then onto the human situation. So um, uh, we're, we're trying to get support uh, to do this uh, at conferences. Uh, we, we, so we're talking to some of the major pharmaceutical companies about this. Often it's a, about getting to the right people who make the, the right decisions to do this. Um, uh, so it's about just, just about communicating ideas um, and uh, having them scrutinised and by all means attempt to shoot us down. But... Collect your, collect your daily data first. Uh, often many of our critics have never collected daily data or serial data. 
So uh, they're, 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 they're criticising us from a paucity, you know, a paucity of data. So go and collect it, and it's got to be done on a daily or near daily basis over at least two to four weeks mm-hmm. in your mouse experiments or in the human clinical situation. And then come back to us and, and tell us what you find. Uh, but uh, like I said, we think this is, uh, uh, is a simple process that just has a little bit of management issues up front that can really be sorted out. A definitive trial with a drug like interleukin-2 would a uh, small number of patients, say 30 patients, observational study or interventional study could be done in 12 weeks. And that, we think, will tell us how to um, use not only interleukin-2, but rosebengal or any of these other agents much more accurately rather in, in a random blunderbust fashion. Yeah, 12 weeks could change a cancer patient's life. Well, indeed, and, we, and you see this clinically, that patients, late-stage patients who have uh, gone into an IL-2 program, uh, 7% of them walk out completely disease-free. And that's a consistent number. And so you've got to ask yourself, why, do these pa- why does this happen to this consistent number of patients uh, uh, you know, with interleukin-2 therapy in, in two very different cancers. So we, we, as we said in our article uh, in Australian Science, Window Opportunity, this is the Rosetta Stone. We believe interleukin-2 is the Rosetta Stone that will tell us how to use all other drugs more accurately. And therefore cheaply, lower toxicity, just go and do the work and do it properly. Yep, that's been very clear from your presentation today. I just want to visit uh, Rose Bengal again. I don't want to have patients going away thinking they'll eat a cupcake <laughs> and uh, yeah. cure their cancer. Yes. So could you talk about the, uh, the process of, of how Rose Bengal is actually being looked at now and developed? Okay, so this, this has been used to treat uh, uh, melanoma patients. And I'll sort of give you a scenario. So a patient's had a melanoma excised from, say, their forearm and Six months, twelve months later, they, they they develop five or six lesions on the forearm, and uh, what they what they've done with Rose Bengal is that they'll they'll inject one lesion, um, and it will disappear, and the uninjected lesions will disappear also. This is called the bystander or the scopal effect. It's been noticed in other modalities such as radiotherapy, and this is clearly happening um, by releasing the immune system from this regulation. So the the uh, the Rose Bengal uh, alerts the immune system and modulates the, the immune system. The interesting thing is that this this Rose Bengal, it's also called PV10. It's being clinically tested by a company called Provectus in the US. Um, it, uh, I have no shares, uh, really no interaction with these people, other than I'm very interested in their research. But it's shining a light on how the, the immune system works in the cancer patient, but it's very cheap. It's about $8 a gram. They make it up as a 10% solution. They inject as little as 0.2 of a mil into one lesion. And, you know, in some patients, um, it, it, uh, the, the rest of the, the, the tumours disappear. Uh, and so um, we just think this is another example of timing that the patient just gets the injection on the on the right day into that lesion, and that uh, really to do successfully treat all patients, just go back and do it again until it works. Don't give up. Fantastic. So we've come to the end of uh, one amazing navigating the cancer maze. Thank you so much, Martin. I'm sure you have brought a lot of inspiration and hope to a lot of patients, and perhaps to some researchers too. Thank you for interest in our work. Thanks a lot. If you want to uh, have a look at the resources for today's Navigating the Cancer Maze, please visit the blog, gracegallermedia.com, immediately after the show, and uh, get in touch with me if you would like any more information. Have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye. 
Thank you again for listening to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Please join your host, Grace Goller, again next Friday at 12 noon U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Remember, cancer is not something you have to face alone. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.